Vodka. Vodka. O'clock. Hey everyone, you are listening to Vodka O'Clock. I am Amber Love and everything is at amberunmasked.com. And if you enjoy the show and the website, don't forget you can go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked to pledge as little as a dollar per week. And joining me today, uh, one of my dear old friends that I haven't had on the show for quite a while, but he's got some big news. So J.K. Woodward is back to talk about his first creator-owned series. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's been like... It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. But you've been doing your own podcast thing, stuff. so how's that going? Oh, good. Good. Yeah, we do... Uh, oh, good. Thanks for the, thanks for the plug. <laughs> yeah. It's called uh, J.K.'s Happy Hour, and it's basically just a, uh, a, an interview show. Um, and... Uh, just done at a bar or a fictional bar. We pretty much drink and interview people. But, I mean, that, that's pretty much every podcast, huh? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but Well, it was it was started back when you were, you know, back out here in New York. Right, right. And it, so it was easier. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's me and Daryl, and, and he would work in the same neighborhood in Queens that I, that, that I did. So we would just meet up at the bar and talk comics, and then one day it just occurred to us, why don't we just, why don't we record this? And then uh, occurred to us, why don't we invite other people? <laughs> you know, it just slowly yeah. evolved into a, a drunken interview show. You know, but that's that's kind of the beauty of podcasts because that's kind of what it is. It's like radio without the professionalism. I know it's wonderful. Yeah. It's so liberating. Yeah, really. Yeah. And you know, so you left the East Coast where you, you know, I don't think you were very fond of it here anyway. But now you're out in California, and I saw today that you tweeted that you had an earthquake. Yeah, yeah, well, it's just a tremor. Okay. It's a tremor, yeah. but I live in an old house, so, like, if, if, you know, somebody's walking on the other side of the apartment, you know, you feel the floor vibrate. It's like one of those. Mm-hmm. So when, when you get a little 3.5 or something, um, you know, the windows start shaking, and it's, <laughs> it's pretty fast. It, it bounces you around a bit. So the, the cat is, like, not useful in giving you any kind of warning? Uh, no, no, he's not much useful for, for much of anything, really. <laughs> Spending my money, eating food, that's about all he does. Awesome. But he's not that's busy so... napping, you know. Yeah, I know. Well, Keiko is sleeping, as she does through pretty much every podcast, so she's she's such a great producer here. Mm. She's just on the desk asleep. <laughs> oh, well. So, um... If people, you know, sacrilege, have not heard of you in comics, um, they've probably at least seen your work on on projects like uh, Star Trek and Doctor Who comics. So you've had a really long career doing the uh, franchise-type licensed properties and everything. So you're making this big switch now to doing um, something. Well, and of course, Fallen Angel was not like your piece of the pie but that was a nice you know yeah. a really fantastic solid indie so you're now doing something that's for yourself with your uh you know creative partner chris mm-hmm. so um you know why is now the time for you to to do this to take on something creator owned uh well it's been about 15 years um and i've been just going from passion project to passion project um but they were all owned by other people so it was all work for hire uh, which is fine, but the the work for hire, uh, you know, sometimes you'll be, you know, when you're working on sequential pages on a project, you'll be working um, 100-hour work weeks. Um, and it just occurred to me as I'm as I'm pushing mid 40s, uh, mid 30s, that um, I can't be doing this forever, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm I'm just trying to think of, you know, if if it's going to be a passion project, maybe I can at least if it does well, then then I get some of that. Um, 
and so that's kind of what it did. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't, um, it's been 15 years, it's about time. And I think anybody who's worked in comics has worked for hire eventually gets to the point where you got to at least try to do your own thing and, and see where that goes. Right. It seems like people, like it's one way or the other. There's, there seems to be not a lot of opportunity to balance those lives. Um, yeah. You know, some, some people can do it, like Gabriel Hardman, who I'm pretty sure drinks more coffee than you. <laughs> Um, I don't think I don't think he sleeps yep. ever. <laughs> um, you know, so he works on things like uh, the Planet of the Apes franchise and uh, Karina Bechko. Uh, they do that together, and then they also do their own uh, independent creator-owned stuff together sure. too. And um, so this is like a big thing for me as someone who's you know who knows your work with Star Trek and everything else. To, to wonder, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, of course you, you've got stories and you've got ideas in your head because you do these, you've always done incredible sketches and pinups. So to see it come out in sequentials now, things that um, give you a different kind of passion and outlet, uh, you know, where did the whole thing come from between you and, uh, and Chris? We want to make sure that, uh, I don't want to butcher his name, is it Kipniak? Kapiniak. Kapiniak, yeah. okay. Um, you know, the, was it just like bullshitting about something else and then you started you know, to talk about Behemoth and the, or the concept behind Behemoth? It's sort of. Like, like everything else, like any other story I can say about my life, it all started in a bar. Um, and I think it was, I first moved to New York and um, my neighbor at the time said, he knew a guy who also worked in comics because whenever you say you work in comics, you know that's that's usually where it goes. Oh, I know a guy that does that too, and you know, so he's like he, you know, he lives in town. He wanted to introduce us, um, and that's that's just how it started. I, I met him at uh, the famous Dominique's Hook in in LIC Queens, um, and we just started talking about like you know um, ideas we had for pitches for for other properties and stuff first, and things we always wanted to do. So of course. Chris Kapiniak, for those that don't know, did a lot of uh, Marvel Marvel adventure stuff, the all ages Spider Man stories, um, and also wrote in two thousand one the Nightcrawler miniseries. So he had he had done his share of work for hire um, before, and then we started talking about exactly what we just talked about, like well, you know, one day wouldn't it be nice to uh, to actually own something you worked on and not have to just you know collect a paycheck. And then we started throwing around ideas, and uh, it was all sort of organic, and I don't remember, you know, who said what, but, uh, the, you know, the idea just kind of developed back and forth as we kept throwing things back. Um, and then that was that. Um, you know, we took a few notes, and then he came back with an outline the next day, and then, you know, we just worked from there. And this was over, like, three years ago. Um, and I had actually started drawing pages right away, but um, like, like you were implying, it's, it's hard to do both. It's hard to do um, work for hire work and work on your own project, so it kept getting it kept getting backburnered. Um, finally, two years later, I said, you know what, I'm not going to take any more work, and you know, try to save as much money so I could be in that position. And that's where we are now. I'm, I'm slowly going broke and getting a, a small page rate to try kind of sustain myself while I do it. And here we go. You know, <laughs> it was I think four years in the making before we get to this point. So other than, um, like, the time commitment, what makes this so different than when you worked with Peter David and you got scripts f from him? 
Like, is this really like completely the, you know, you and Chris, a hundred percent, like all the time coming up with the ideas or do you still get, um, is it more like you're getting a script and then tweaking things with him later? Oh, uh, we, well, we came up the, the, the big difference is we came up with the arc together. Uh, then a script, a uh, outline was developed from that, then a script was developed from that, and then changes were made. So I'm involved in the process all the way through. So there's a huge difference because with Peter David and Fallen Angel, I would just get the script, you know, and I like I couldn't wait to get the script because I had no idea what it was about. And then I would read the script. It was pretty much that simple here. The script is just a refinement of a of a a thing that that Chris and I had already come up with. Uh, Plus, the characters were a lot of characters were co-created by me. So it's, it's it's really a huge difference. It's it's I'm less of an automaton or, or art monkey. <laughs> you know, I get to develop who these characters are. I know who these characters are even before I ever sketch them out. Um, that's a huge difference too. Um, it's uh, it's it's almost like getting a 360 view of something when you're used to having kind of tunnel vision. You know, the, the I know the project a lot better. So it's it's in that sense it's a, it's a much more fun to work on. That's cool. That's really cool. So what sort of um, publishing and distribution are you looking to do with this? Um, well, the first thing we did because of um, budgetary concerns, we wanted to just you know, try it out and go from there. Um, and right around that time, we were thinking about pitching it here and there and, and, and where we are going to go with it. Monkey Brain came out and, um, from uh, Chris Robinson, little project there. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I had actually met him back in 2001 for the first time. I was living in Germany at the time, and I, I, I met him at um, um, San Diego Comic-Con somehow. You know how that goes. But um, probably in a bar. Um, well, of course. <laughs> but uh, he, had a, he had a publishing house at the time he was trying to get off the ground called Monkey Brain. Um, so when I heard about Monkey Brain, I, imme- I immediately was like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And I contacted Chris, and he's like, yeah, we're trying to do comics now. And I'm like, well, so I got kind of excited about that, especially when I uh, when I first read uh, when it started. I read Amelia Cole, which I, I really enjoyed. He had, he, it was digital comics only, but he had quality stuff up there, um, not not a bunch of hit and miss. And uh, so I asked him about it. and He says, "Yeah, we look over everything." So I, you know what? I'm going to submit our behemoth idea uh, now that we have like ten pages done. And this was years and years ago. And um, you know, see what he says. If he if he likes it, then we'll just we'll publish there and and you know go from there. Um, and he liked it, and we signed a contract. And only three years later, we got issue one to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, it, um, people who may have seen Chris Roberson's name most recently is, are in the credits of I Zombie, the new TV series based on yes. his comic. So that's incredible. So happy so, for know, the guy. Yeah, I mean. The experience of, you know, here was, you know, somebody that you knew sort of grows into this, this fame. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's our little small world of pop culture fame, but still, I mean. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, you know, he, he, he broke into TV and that's, that's great. That's great when that happens with the property because you get uh, a wider readership. Well, the, the hope is that you get a wider readership, but you get a, a wider awareness either way which is nice. Um, and I should say that I, I believe his wife, Allison, had a lot to, to do with making all this happen because she's sort of the uh, behind the scenes in, in this relationship. They both work together a lot on a lot of stuff. Right. And I know she's over at um, uh, IDW now doing something. She does the kind of stuff artists like us don't really understand. <laughs> 
Right. Like the, yeah. The people that make things happen, you know, so I can't really say what, but. But it's all that back end stuff that, you know. Yeah. Your, your job is to create. It's great if, honestly, if part of making comics, especially indie comics, that you you need the this sense and skill also with doing that behind the scenes stuff, like learning how to file taxes if you've actually made any money, or you know <laughs> how to budget and yeah. you know how to promote without coming off like um, you know like an asshole online. Yeah. Um, that one I still know, gotta work on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but speaking of budgets and everything, so how are you guys doing this? Because I know a lot of people end up going through Kickstarter or, you know, they they try to get funded from a publisher, which is awfully rare. Um, so how are you guys managing this? Um, well, I first off, I, I put as much away as I can. And every time I tried to save money, something disastrous would happen. Like the biggest example is Sandy. Um, right. You know, so then I, any any savings I had always as a freelancer, something comes up. <laughs> um, but I did manage to have a pretty good year at conventions last year, so I put as much as I could away, supplemented by a very small, um, a very small amount of uh, page, uh, a very small page rate coming from, um, uh, coming from Chris himself, and it's it's small enough where it's something you can afford every issue, um, so that'll supplement my income, just enough to pay the bills um, while I do this. Um, and I think Chris gets it from the money from selling drugs. I can't be sure though. I don't know. All I, right. I think you know. it might be, I think he might be some kind of kingpin. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, then you can't speak his name, right? Yeah, Isn't that, no, no. <laughs> we just did. Kapiniak. Oh shit. Oops. Our lives ain't worth anything. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think, well, he, he has a better uh, day job than me. I think um, he's um, he's actually acted on Broadway. Did you know this about him? I did. I read it. I read his bio um, at the end of uh, issue one. There's you know the little sure. write up of you guys and what you do and stuff. And so yeah, it was um, it was interesting to hear his background. I'm not sure if actors make great money, you know, especially um, you know. But I'm I'm guessing that it, it affords him enough time for writing, which is which is much. Um, Percentage-wise, it's a smaller time allotment um, than drawing. Um, so I, I, I think it gives him enough time and it gives him the money, whereas I have to, while I'm working on this, stop doing any work that brings money in. Um, so luckily, um, we didn't have to go the Kickstarter route because old Moneybags had the money. <laughs> oh, cool. Cool. And you're, meanwhile, you're jet-setting all over the planet for conventions and stuff. So how do you keep a schedule at all like you said it took you three years to get to issue one yeah so um you know how how are you juggling things like a schedule when you're when you still have to travel um well it's it's not that hard because sometimes i bring pages with me the hard part is as i'm i'm i want to take as many commissions as possible because like i said um the the page rate i'm getting for this is the bare minimum so i want to take as much work as i can that gets in the way the actual travel time is just the amount of time you're in the air and as long as I'm in the country, it's not, you know, it's only about five or six hours or so. Um, but really, I'm doing a different style now. If you if you look at the, the artwork um, in this, did we mention the name yet? It's Behemoth. Um, if you look at the artwork in Behemoth, <laughs> um, there it's, it's a different style. I'm doing ink wash now, which is, uh, compared to painting, um, 
penciling, inking, and coloring takes less than half the time of painting a page. So I'm able to do this much quicker. I'm able to get 22 pages done in less than three weeks. Um, so th there's a lot more wiggle room than there was, say, when I was working on um, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, where um, you know I would have to take a full six weeks of 80 to 100-hour work weeks to get the project done. This, I can work a, a little bit more normal hours. And how much are you doing um, actually digitally when it comes to making the page? Well, um, I actually have something on my blog that, that can show this better. Um, I think it's just a few entries back, but uh, it's what I'm doing is is I'm just doing it in ink wash, so I'm establishing tone, establishing tones, and and um, in in ink, and then doing digital color like any other comic. Um, the coloring process is slightly different because you know there are tones in there in black and white, um, but it's it's pretty much just like a regular comic: pencil, ink, and digital color. Okay. I mean, I because I have examples of the pages. If you want to, you know, post it in the, the show notes or something afterwards. Yeah, we'll totally do that. Because I love, um, I actually love your blog for that reason. I wanted to make sure that we, uh, you know, made sure that by the end of it, we we mentioned the URL and everything. Because you do post these cool process blogs, of, and you show like all of these different stages, and even, uh, you know, going back to if you had brushes out and. Like I can't imagine traveling with all that stuff, but obviously if that's if you have to, you have to you have to figure it out because yeah. you're handing somebody the work right there at the convention as opposed to like yeah a laptop is easy or something to pack yeah but how do you how do you give that to a person for a commission yeah the, well the hardest part of traveling is ink I never like to travel with ink because you know you get one drop of ink spilled in your luggage and all your clothes you know it just spreads it spreads forever. Uh, and they must have, uh, you know, like all these liquid restrictions with how much, you know, a tube of something can hold and all of that. I don't know. Have you ever run into any kind of TSA problems? No, not really, because I, I have a, I, I need a very small amount of ink. Like I said, one drop goes pretty far with the, with this stuff in the ink. Um, and I always take a very small amount um, because I, I buy it in bulk. I have a big jug of ink here, and I just dump it into a little travel container and take it with me and hope to God it doesn't leak. And I always take it in my carry-on. But it's it's way under the three-ounce limit. Uh, the only thing I have a problem with is is I, like, tape it up in a, in a you know, um, a Ziploc bag, and then I tape it, you know, so that even if it spills, there's no chance of it getting out. And sometimes they make me undo the whole thing and show them what it is. <laughs> so it's yeah. always a pain. A lot of times, if I can, if I'm going to big cons, I'd rather just spend the like three to four bucks on new ink as long as they have a, um, um, you know, sometimes they have a, a retailer there that sells art supplies at the big cons, not always at the small ones. So if that's the case, like at C2E2, I didn't bother packing ink because it's, it's a big scare. <laughs> ink is something yeah. that can just cause you lots of problems. Oh, my. Yeah, I um was was just going through... Uh, a container. I just have like one of those things from like leftover Thai food, you know, plastic containers with the lids. Yeah. And I had in all of these, they, they were really great uh, silicone tears and scars and special effects applica applications. Mm -hmm. And I had the, like a couple containers of the adhesive in there. And instead of having those in separate baggies, I just went to look at it, and at some point, the the glue adhesive, like, leaked all over everything, and now I just have, like, a container of 
like rock clumped together silicone goo. <laughs> it's disgusting. So I'm like, well, guess I'm never using these. <laughs> now you have modern art. That's what. You're... Yeah. It's gross. I mean, if I applied that to myself, I probably would look like one of your monsters. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about Behemoth and this story because you've got a teenage girl as your main character, Teresa Fowler, and in issue one, we see that right away, like by page two or three or whatever, she's she, well, she's vomiting, and I gotta I gotta give you kudos to the vomiting sound effects because they're hilarious. Um, and like her skin is changing everything like her body is going through these changes and i was i was wondering i'm like hmm this seems like either a big metaphor about what it's like being a teenager and getting into your body or it's just a monster story so you know what was the drive to making this character teresa and making her a monster um I think um, I think you hit on something when you when when you were talking about um, it's basically it's it's a it's a metaphor for pubescence because that's kind of how I look at it when when we're developing it um, and it's also like it's also that kind of fear of entering into the unknown that fear of growing up and that's that's kind of what what their thing they don't want to become the monster they want to it's kind of reminded me of that feeling of you just want to stay you know despite the fact that every kid wants to grow up before they're supposed to there's a part of you that wants to stay a kid as long as possible and you know it and that's kind of what what my thing was with this but mostly when we started it we just wanted to have monsters fighting for the army <laughs> that's that's right that's where it all started and and then it just came to uh what's what's the best way to do this um well cuz i know that you've you know you've been a fan of godzilla and mm-hmm. other kaiju type sure. type monsters so i wasn't surprised to see you making a monster story i but i was intrigued by the fact that you have them all very uniquely identified mm-hmm. and um you know just like it reminded me of things like the x men of how some you have beast who goes through the you know these big changes and feels like he's not presentable to the public and then you have other people you know who can pass who pass yeah <laughs> You can pass as a normie. With, with this, what, we, um, what we're trying to get across, too, is everybody develops at a different rate, you know, again, like puberty. Um, but um, basically, the more monstrous they look, the idea is the, the less human they are on the inside as well as the outside. And the further along they are in their development as becoming monsters. And the, the, what we're trying to get across is the prospect is, is very frightening when it's first starting to happen to you, like, you know, uh, our main character, Teresa is not looking forward to losing her mind. And you can see already that she, she does go into rages where we're inexplicably, you know, violent rages, like, like she had in the first issue towards her mother for no reason. Um, so this idea is, is frightening her. And what, what happens is, um, the government of course needs to exploit these things, <laughs> you know, as, as the as government agencies tend to do. Um, and uh, they're, the way that they're doing it is offering them some a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of pause from that, like you know the the idea that we can forestall this at the very least, um, even holding the carrot of a possible cure, you know, over their head. Um, but um, you know whether any of any of that is actually going to happen, we don't know. But we, what we do know is is that there is an agency, um, there is a villain, um, 
and that is uh, what is his name again? Major uh, Major Rain, I think. Uh, right? Rain. Rain. Yeah, I was thinking Pain. Yeah. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> um, um, you know, and he's he, he's very exploitative in his pitch to Teresa to get her to do this. But what they're doing is just going over psychological profiles, seeing how far along they are, how controllable they are, how malleable they are, how powerful they are, um, how likely they are to fall into line and follow orders, and just picking people out of internment camps. And, and these these um, people who are turning into monsters are basically dragged into this internment camp. And as you see in the first issue, it's horrible conditions. So it's very easy to recruit once you have them there. And that's pretty much where, where this issue is about. So when Teresa has to, uh, I mean, first of all, it's a big shock to her to learn that that this is a process, that other people have gone through it. And she's presented with this decision, do I stay here in this camp where it's horrible, or do I take this you know, job, if you will, this sort of indentured servitude or whatever of the military? How will you guys show opportunities where she does make her own decisions? Because it feels like this is a decision of something that she doesn't have control over. So um, as, a, as a character, what is she going to be like? Well, she, she does. Go with I don't want to spoil too much, but without giving too much away, she, right now she's in a situation where she's been um, dragged from her home, um, put into this position where she really has no choices. Um, but she's she's not going to stay quite where she <laughs> where she is um, psychologically. You know, she does obviously develop. Um, she adjusts to this environment and um, kind of becomes kind of becomes her own person. Like right now, she's she's just totally outside control. She becomes. I'm trying to say this carefully without giving anything away. But she, right, I know. But she, I have, that's the thing. I have the questions, and I'm like, it'll spoil everything, the questions that I have. <laughs> she, she, she does change a lot from where she is right now. I, I will say that. Um, she's in, you know, she had that pretty much choice. I say that in quotes because it really is no choice. Um, either, you know, go back to jail or we'll give you this job where things are a little better. Um, she goes from, from that to... Kind of, well, okay, let me just say this. All my, all, every book I work on, every script, I look for one thing or, or two things. Um, but one of the main things I look for is that characters start off, um, start off like they feel like they're, there's uh, just them in the world, you know, just very focused on themselves. And they find a, a family, usually a very, uh, not very, uh, a very unique one, you know, a very unique, unconventional family. Uh, family sense and that's kind of what she does here and that's what that's what's going to develop as we go on but beyond that there's a lot more to this character we're going to find out i'll, I'll just say that I, I, every time i try to be more specific i just get more vague <laughs> no that's okay yeah because i it's like the questions that i have from someone who uh, like i got to read the the first mm -hmm. uh chapter here is you know i'm curious about her i want to know is she the type that's going to be a leader or is she going to be in a learning stage for a while and need an older mentor to get her through this really awkward, difficult kind of time that she's going through? And, you know, like, is she going to learn anything about why her, like why are only certain people going through this? You know, I have, those are the kind of questions that I have and I, 
I don't know how to even get those answers without spoiling yeah. the whole rest of the book. I will say she's going to grow a lot. She is going to learn a lot. And she okay. and and there's 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 loss she's going to experience along the way. You know, just like just like any story, this character is going to develop. We're we're looking at her in um, in in her infancy in this in this first issue. You know, this is sort of you know it starts right away with her rebirth. This is her new life. Her old life is gone. We barely even get to see any of her old life. She's kind of just ripped right out of there. Um, so right now she's yeah, at best a toddler. Um, and she is going to grow up a lot in the in the four issues here. She's going to end as a totally different character, um, both wow. both um, you know both inside and out because she is going to change throughout each issue. She's going to look a little different throughout each issue. So there's something to look forward to. <laughs> I get the character design for every issue. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, I know. Well, that's one of the things that I was saying was about how all of the monsters are very unique looking, and they all have their own form of communication. So yeah. it's almost like, do they even know if they're understanding each other yeah. when they're squawking and shrieking? Yeah, most of them are just you know they lose the power of speech, and just, those are just monstrous noises they're making. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then you know that's that's the big fear. That's what she's that's what she's got to look forward to. That's what's scaring the hell out of her right now. Um, but I, I, without spoiling, I can say this: when when she meets Rex, who's who's the leader of this group, she's surprised that he's talking because he's he looks to have transformed, you know, well into monster form, and he's still unlike the rest. He still seems to have um, developed a certain amount of human decorum. Um. And uh, that kind of gives her hope, and that's that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but, but I mean, okay. for for the most part, we're just seeing most of these creatures transform into into basically animals, animalistic monsters, and she doesn't want that to happen. And and that's sort of the carrot that the government dangles to get them get them on board. Well, I know that you are a, a huge fan and you know creator of sci-fi and everything, so I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of uh, insight as to how much science we're going to be seeing because we get a look at some labs and lab equipment in the first issue mm -hmm. and you know is there any way to at least say how much you're going to go into to things that are uh, science-based sci yeah. yeah like science-based I mean with with transformations I mean because I mean this sort of experimentation stuff is going on, you know, they're growing ears on the backs of rats mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, using pig valves in hearts and stuff like that. That stuff's been going on a long time, this sort of splicing together, and then we start getting into robotics and bionics and everything. So, you know, where is your science going to, is it going to be vague or is it going to be like right there? Well, in this, in this first arc, this first miniseries, we're we're purposely trying to avoid getting too much into the why the monsters and and just where they're going with it. We drop a few hints, and of course the the doctor character and uh, her name escapes me already. Selig Seligman, I think. Yeah, Doctor Seligman. The the doctor character gets a let's say she gets a lot more time, but we it's not necessarily lab time. There's just you know small scenes in the lab. But she she um, she's got big changes coming up with her character as well, and that's all I'll say about that. Because <laughs> okay. she she was she was a character that intrigued me because she felt to me when when I first read the outlines that she was somebody caught between um, 
these these kids are these monsters that that she cares for and and you know sometimes has to experiment on um and the military that just sees these these kids as commodities i i felt like she would have more of a um more of a connection with these kids and and there would be some conflict there and which way is she going to go with that so I, I kind of always wanted to pump up her character a little bit and give her more to do and that was one of the things me and Chris talked about in fact we just recently made a, a, some small changes with issue 3 and 4 so I'm kind of excited to get to those issues so you can see more from her but it won't be so much the, the science part of it, she will be explaining some things but it just... Um, if you're looking for a scientific explanation, you're not going to get all the the questions answered. However, this is eventually going to happen. We're just kind of saving that up. Okay. So, and, you know, speaking of the labs and the equipment and everything, from an art perspective, where do you get reference and ideas in order for you to design these, the, the world, because you, you know, you've obviously got the really cool creature design, but you're also creating the, you know, the interiors of these these camps and the labs and everything else. Well, the, what I got for inspiration for the camps was the Japanese internment camps of World War II, and I pretty much went just with that. I didn't, uh, I didn't update it too much. Uh, you know, I, I did make it look like something that would be built today, but. Barracks are pretty much barracks, <laughs> and that's what you know. That's what people lived in. So if you look at that, you you, you might recognize that as a Japanese internment camp. That's the kind of thing I kept. Um, I imagined, you know, the the ceilings. They're in an underground cavern where this internment camp is, so they're not even out in open air. But it is dug out of a a, a mountain, so the walls are all just cavernous. That's fun to do. I've always painted rock. You know, I didn't need any reference for that. But the idea for the ceiling that had the, the stadium lights hanging from it that, that acted as their artificial sunlight um, came from going to conventions. <laughs> and it's pretty much if you look, at, <laughs> you look at these convention halls and you see all this like open ironwork and rafters and, and, and so forth. And uh, that's pretty much what I drew for that. So that was a design for that. Um, gen- just genetics labs. I just did a bunch of research online of what genetics labs looks like. Um, was my inspiration for the lab they used. And uh, also a lot of the stuff that's in there was specifically mentioned by uh, Kapiniak in the script, uh, like a monitor with some kind of monster skeleton on it and, and all the stuff that we're going we're gonna to see in the labs. A lot, of, a lot of the ideas were mentioned by him in the script. Okay, that's good to know. It's you know it's cool to see like how, how different the collaboration process can be with what, you know, what an artist has to go out and figure out on their own and how much freedom they have versus, um, you know, when something is really specific in mind. And so so let's talk about the vomiting sounds because this is hilarious. Is that you're doing? Is that in the script that way? Is it lettering? I think that I gotta give uh, I gotta give Chris credit for that. I think that that was um, I'm pretty sure that the sound effect was in the um, in the script and um, you know it's it's partially a vomit sound, but it's I think it's like his monstrous vomit sound and uh, yeah, you know. I kind of zoned in on that too. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool. I know because it, like it wasn't just once; like it was this poor kid. She just can't stop throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> she had a rough time. You know, she had she had two puke scenes in the same twenty-two pages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you know, and it's when when it's your drunk friend and you don't want to laugh but you can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. 
That's awesome. That's just so awesome. So uh, another artistic thing that I wanted to ask you about was the page layouts. Um, I'm curious where, you know, talking about like what your scriptwriter, you know, instructs you to do with something specific, like you're saying, including things in, in certain panels and everything. Sometimes your your layouts, the pace changes when you have more of the the square panels that typically fill up like maybe six or seven per page. But then there are other ones where you have the wide, very wide um, uh, landscape like oriented panels and they're just like stacked and it'd be like six even very wide panels in one page. So is that something that comes from Chris or is that all based on how you envision the, the speed of that particular moment? Um, that's, that's pretty much me. Um, the, you know, the panel numbers are of course, uh, decided by the, um, by the writer. Um, but panel formation generally isn't, um, once in a while he'll say, pick, you know, he'll write a, a horizontal panel that takes up the whole page or something like that. Um, if he feels strongly about it and then I'll go ahead and do what I want anyways, but <laughs> Right. Well, that's that's usually how I write a script. I'm like, well, I'm thinking of it like this, but yeah. do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, there's there's been a case too sometimes where I where I wanted to uh, if I wanted to put a like a, a a break in the action or a pause for a second or, or separate this panel from that panel, where I'll call him up and say, is it okay if I do an inset panel of here? Let's. I think this is where we need to close in on our eyes for this or or something like that. Um, so that you know, when it comes to visually setting it up, Chris has been good about. Um, sort of just trusting my judgment on that. But usually we, you know, like it's, it, the panel count is definitely established, but everything else after that is, uh, is up to me. And same with camera angles. Sometimes that's put in the script and sometimes it isn't. Um, but, you know, being that this is a collaboration, it's much more fluid than normal, um, or much more back and forth, I should say, than normal. So, um, you know, it's generally much more up to me than it, than it would be, say, with a Star Trek script. Okay. So when we have a moment like that where something is slow and dramatic, do you like do you spend a lot of time thinking about the panel layout that is going to be, you know, wide panels or is it something that you've just done like for a million years so now you just do it without thinking? A little of both. Generally, I just do it without thinking because I've been I've been, you know, drawing these things. I've been drawing off a script for over 15 years now. So, you know, the layouts kind of come naturally now. But every once in a while when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll sketch something out, look at it and go, something's not working there. And that's when you think about it. You always go with your first instinct and then step back and, and look at it. You try to look at it um, um, and, and figure out if it's working or not. But generally, yeah. Okay. Just draw, just draw them out. <laughs> just do it. It's, so when, um, like, the title of the series is Behemoth, and that's specifically referring to the, like, the mission or the military team the aspect. Yeah. Right. So, um, and, you know, by the end of issue one, we see that there's definitely going to be a team cast here. And do you, like, how much can you tell us about the team that's not going to be spoilery? Let me put it that way. Because I'm curious about who these other characters are that are going to make up Teresa's team. Okay, good. Okay. Um, let's see. What can I tell you without telling you anything? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Um, the, the team is definitely a bunch of different characters, um, and 
some are are less human than others. Some some are harder to control and a concern to uh, to reign. You've met well, you've met all of them. You've seen all of them, but you really haven't met them yet. I'll I'll say this: the um, the bug character Link. He's he's a big question mark, and he's meant to be. Uh, he doesn't speak. He he doesn't really even make any noise, and. You know, the fact that he's designed as an insect, um, and he was designed by, that was one of Chris's, um, I'm sure is no accident, because insects kind of look like aliens, you know? <laughs> you really, right. out of anything else in the animal kingdom, I mean, fish make more sense to me. I can relate to a fish more than an insect. They just look like robots or something. Um, he's going to be the character that you watch out for. Um, in fact, he's featured on the second issue cover. The Obviously, we've we've learned by now, Rex is the leader, and he seems to have the most humanity, uh, and that's sort of the the kind of lion-looking one. Some of the more savage, monstrous ones are um, the character Lucy, who she came in with Link, and she's one of the ones in the first issue that that kidnapped um, from the barracks, um, Teresa. That character just seems to like to smash things. The character is, is kind of fun for me to draw. <laughs> I have an affection for this character because she's she's not really she doesn't seem she seems the one that has less drama but she's just you know she just likes to beat on things um but the the ones to watch out for is the the gorn looking creature it's sort of that that lizard creature whose name escapes me at the moment I have trouble with their names (laughs) Sanjay I think is the uh the lizard character he's one of the ones that fly off the handle as is the sort of werewolf looking character so We've got you know two characters that are just slowly losing it. We've got one character we don't know much about. At the end of this first issue, we see it feels like almost a cohesive group because they just train together, and as they train, you know it all seems to work out. But um, they're not as cohesive as it may seem from that. And we start seeing the different personalities, which is fun to do, um, especially without dialogue. It's 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 a good challenge for for me as an artist to get these personalities out without one single word spoken with the exception of Rex. That's got to be an interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, we just say it with fight scenes. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a lot of action in issue two. And, and uh, it's kind of like, you know, if you know, love it or hate it. One thing I liked about the King Kong movie when that first came out, the remake was that the first act was, or, the, or rather the second act was the story of Kong himself. And it was told without words. You got to know his personality, you got to know who he was, you got to know his, his, his home, and you got to feel for this creature, and he didn't speak one word. And it's kind of that kind of um, character development I'm trying to do with these, these quote, monsters. I think when it's, when it's done well, that's when people really, really notice. Because uh, it's not like a picture book, like a children's picture book, you know, where there'll be like one image that's supposed to tell everything. And then you have all this, these words on a page to explain what the image is. It's, mm-hmm. it's the exact opposite. And you really have to bring everything to life. And I've noticed that even your color palette is completely different than what I've seen you do before. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it seems like everything is like, there's, you don't have a lot of saturation. Like there's no life or vibrancy right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and that, that was done intentionally. In fact, well, the first couple of pages, it's not, it is still a little desaturated because I just don't like to use bright colors. Um, 
but in in the first few pages, we're in the nice white suburban home where Teresa came from, and it's just all warm colors. You know, it's all right. It, it feels a little welcoming, and then even when she she tries to escape these these people that are that are kidnapping her for the government. And she jumps out the window, and it's just a horrifying scene. But it's a beautiful blue sky and beautiful bright green trees, and and then you know you go from that to um, you know disease yellow and browns, and you know barely saturated gray rock, and and uh, a lot more dark shadows. And I'm just trying to to you know just create a mood with the palette, you know, where, where you know even she's in a place she she nobody would really want to be. <laughs> You know, that's the idea. Yeah, it feels like a like an actual shift. Like you can you can see that difference, okay. and I can see the difference. Like I said, even you know, you say that you don't like using bright, vibrant colors, but you use it when you need to. Like when you, you draw a lightsaber, it looks like that damn thing is glowing, super bright. <laughs> you know, and so in here, like you're saying, the house is like warm and charming and friendly and everything, but then you get to the lab and the camp, and it's like you said, sickly is a perfect way to describe how the mood feels there. And at the same time, even in the darkest scenes, um, I like to put um, a, a backlit glow on things. I like, I like yellow and orange auras on people. Um, so I, I definitely do that, that cold and warm scheme and some of the, um, some of the darker, darker scenes. Some, a lot of this, a lot of the scenes in two take place inside the, you know, the, these these tunnels where they not tunnels but dark hallways you know where they have these sliding doors where the privileged monsters live and it's all just it's all mostly you know uh, very desaturated because it's dark it's very dimly lit but I like to do that um, that that kind of rim lighting on all the characters because just even though I don't like bright colors maybe a little bright highlight won't hurt anything and it kind of makes the characters pop out and it's just it's that cyan orange color scheme I love so much that they use in every movie. <laughs> Yeah, they do nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so, J.K., would life be easier as a monster? Like, is it is it that you don't have much to think about, and you know, you're just existing in the world? Do you think it's easier, or do you think it's harder? Okay, just to point out, you're asking sober James right now. Drunk James would have a different answer. Drunk, drunk James right. just wants to be a monster, wants to shut it all down. That's why he drinks. <laughs> but yeah, it, would it be easier? Sure, sure. Um, I, I feel, and I, I think this applies to everybody. I don't think I'm special when I say this, but I, you know, I always, the hardest thing to do, I always feel a pull towards the primal, you know, um, the hardest thing to do is, 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 um, avoid inappropriate sex or inappropriate violence or all the things that, that, that make life so much fun. Um, but also make it dangerous. Um, the part that makes us human is, is, um, is is the the civilized man is the um the conscience the conscience yeah <laughs> um to to say just cuz you just cuz you want a thing doesn't mean you have to have that thing or just because you know the 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 whatever part of your brain stops you from throwing that punch when somebody says something that offends you you know um so of course it would be easier being a monster <laughs> to just let go but then you know humanity's a great thing and i wouldn't want to give it up it's yeah, it's definitely hard. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's a price for everything great. I mean, uh, you know, like my, my um, career is a good analogy for that. I mean, I work hundred-hour work weeks. I give up a good uh, part of what's considered a normal life or, or uh, a social life. Um, but 
And then people say, well, at least you're doing something you love. You don't love anything when you do it for 100 hours a week. You start to hate it, you know. But, I mean, it's a sacrifice, but it's worth it because what you get out of it, it's fulfillment. And so I guess I, I guess a good way to put this is being human is about fulfillment. Um, and um, being a monster is is just about, uh, you know, getting what you want, uh, the fulfillment of desires, you know, I guess you could say. Right. It's um, it reminds me the way that you're saying it reminds me of that scene in Jaws when Hooper is explaining what it means to be a shark. He's like, yeah. they they swim, they eat, they make little sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> and well, you know, your convention schedule is always pretty awesome and pretty heavy and you get all over the world. So when nerds get together, they end up discussing oh, Everything like arguing over whether the thing's penis is made out of rock or whether, you know, Wonder Woman could fuck the Hulk or whatever it is. And so you've gotten to work on some of your favorite franchises like Doctor Who and Star Trek. Um, you've done some Star Wars pinups and mashups and everything. So you've actually been living the dream for decades. And now you're doing this independent creator owned work. Which do you consider the dream coming true? Was it, was it that you already had the dream come true, or is it a whole different experience? Uh, yeah, that's hard to say because you know when when you know in a sense, yeah, the dream has come true because when I was twelve years old, there's nothing I wanted to do more than work on an X Men comic. That was the you know that was on the list. You know, before I die, I have to do, and I did that. So in a sense, that came true. Uh, I never, some things came true that dreams I never even dared to dream, like meeting Harlan Ellison and working with him on uh, City on the Edge of Forever. I mean, the, I, I have that guy's phone number. I can call him any time now. That's just weird, you know? <laughs> and, exactly. As is with Peter David. To, so, so it's, it's, it's you know, it, it'd be so easy for me to say, yeah, the dream came true. Um, but I guess in the end, the dream for me is to... Uh, instead of working for, you know, uh, Roddenberry's dream or, or Lucas's creation to be these people, you know, to, to see if I can or, you know, that's that's maybe overstating. That's a little too grand to, to do a property that big. But but to, to have to see somebody dressed as one of my characters at a con one day would be great to see a Teresa walking around, you know. Um, so I guess, you know. And and once I you know once I accomplish Matt, that there'll always be something more. So I guess I would I would hate to be alive when the dream came true, <laughs> you know. And that's because you know what what would I do? <laughs> but I think it, I don't I don't think dreaming big is is that awful. Like I don't think the fantasy of it is is a bad thing to do because you know as we oh. mentioned Chris Roberson like you know <laughs> here he was the guy making independent comics and now he's got stuff on TV. Yeah, that's true. And the, the Walking Dead. I mean, The Walking Dead is like ridiculously huge. Sure. Oh yeah, and there's there's tons of stories like that starting way back with the uh, you know Eastman and Liard with the Ninja Turtles it made a fortune on that. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and it it became you know part of American or Western subculture. Um, sure. It's just I try not to keep my eye on on that particular goal as much as just creating. I, I just want to 
you know, I just wanted to, you know, when I mentioned Lucas and, and Roddenberry in, in, in my own name mixed in, it just felt pretentious. <laughs> so, of course. You know. Yeah, of course it's going to, because, you know, right now your your goal is to tell a story. Right. Like, that is your goal. Go from there. It's not. And, and like you I know, said, you know, I, I don't even, I don't think I, I, I would need that level of success even to be, uh, to be happy. It just, just to, just to know people are reading it and enjoying it. I mean. Because let me say, if there's ever a Woodward themed, uh, uh, you know, amusement park, I'd be first in line. <laughs> I mean, because I, I don't even want to know what the, you know, little log flume going through the cave scenario would be like in Woodward land. <laughs> I'd probably pee my pants. It'd be a little, it'd definitely, it'd be a, a crosswind Giger and Lovecraft, you know, it'd just be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'd be tentacles everywhere. <laughs> yeah, biomechanic tentacles. Yep. So, do you ever have time to actually read comics? I do, but usually, um, the, the, the I think sometimes the reason I do so many cons um, is because it actually gives me time. Being on a plane gives me time. So, um, but I can't ever, I can't ever read anything regularly. You know, I can, I'll never be the guy that has, goes to the store every Wednesday because I just can't. I don't have the time. Uh, and then if I if I did, it would just stack up, and I I wouldn't read it. So I buy things. Um, you know, and I I hate to be the guy that says this, but I buy things um, in trades or collected. And read. that's what I I normally do too. I mean, it's, it's uh, I I hate saying it because it's not necessarily good for the industry. Sometimes a lot of books get canceled because yeah. of that because they get good numbers on the trades, but you know, it's not enough to keep. Yeah, no, yeah, they don't keep going if they if you don't get the monthly numbers. Um, so. That's why I like to talk about the few that I do read regularly. <laughs> I mean, um, or if I've already read the issues and then the trade comes out, I make sure to mention it again. Uh, you know, so things that I think your audience, for example, would like, you know, if they're if they've seen issue one of Behemoth or if they've seen your other work, uh, I kind of think that your audience would like Death Sentence and Bitch Planet. Oh, cool. So, I, so I don't, either. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and this is why I'm telling you because I want you to keep your eyes peeled for the trades like Death Sentence is now uh, starting its second arc. So if you ever, you know, get the opportunity to see Volume One somewhere, I want you to get it. And Bitch Planet is is like new, so it's only got four issues out so far, and it's already a cult. Cool. I just wrote those well, down, so I'm going to check them out. Awesome. So what cons are you going to be at so that people can go find you? Oh, let's see. Well, I don't, I'm not sure um, when this is going to air. but in, This will air mid-May. So Okay, then you can come see me now at uh, the Minneapolis Comic Con, MSP Comic Con, May 16th and May 17th. Uh, I just got done with C2E2. Um, trying to think of what's at the end. Oh, Washington, D.C., awesome con. Are you going to be going down to that one? No, I did uh, hit it for a day last year. It was really nice. Yeah, it was. I was. Um, that's done by the the guys at the Third Eye, I think, uh, Ben Penrod. Yeah. Um, he used to do really small cons that I used to go to because um, he would just always invite me down, and they were, you know, they were really like one room small cons, but they were charming, they were fun, and, and I got a lot of commission work. And then one day he invites me to this awesome con, and I'm preparing for another small con. I didn't really have any idea, but it it uh, it was huge. You know, for the kind of cons he usually does, and then I, I heard I wasn't there last year, but I heard it got even bigger. So I'm really excited to see what it's like this year. But 
I'm, I'm really happy to see these guys that do these, you know, come up from these little small cons and end up, uh, you know, playing with the big boys. Yeah, they're popping up. They really are growing. Yeah. Um, some of them, you know, like I, I heard that about Heroes, that Heroes had started out so small. Baltimore, I knew. Like, Baltimore was pretty small and then, like, got so jam-packed. Sure. Um, so are you coming back to New York area at all? Um, I was going to do the, um, you know, special edition, um, but I, uh, I can't fit it in. So what's going on. Okay. So after AwesomeCon, which is end of May, beginning of June... Oh, no, it's just end of May. It's the last three days of May. Um, oh, I'll be doing late June. The closest I get is Worcester, Mass. Um, I'll be doing MassiveCon. Um, and then San Diego in July, of course. And then, oh, I just got invited to the, the big Star Trek con, too, in, uh, in Vegas. But none oh, of those are exciting. in New York, so... <laughs> yeah, no, they're definitely not. They're very far from New York. Well, no, no Massachusetts isn't. And, and neither is D.C., yeah, DC is is drivable. Mass looks drivable, and Google thinks it's drivable, <laughs> but it, it doesn't really take traffic into consideration. Yeah. <laughs> as I learned last year when I went to Boston. <laughs> well, I've, I've made that trip. You know, obviously, I lived in New York for, yes. for four years, and I have family in New England, so I've had to make that trip before. And it's nah, it's never fun. I mean, the big clusterfuck between. Um, you know, getting out of New York and getting to uh, getting through to Connecticut, and then there's another one when you get close to Boston. You know, on the border of uh, Connecticut. Um, so there's two major traffic things. Oh, just don't get me started. Yeah, I know. Well, is it better over there in California? Well, you never drove, so I don't even know how you function. Like, it's, uh, like, is it still you're in an area where it's just all transit? Uh, well, L- Long Beach is a separate city from Los Angeles. Um, it's about maybe a half-hour drive south, so it's very close. Um, but Long Beach is, is different. Yeah, it's very easy to get around Long Beach. I'm, I'm a few blocks from the beach, a few blocks from downtown, a few blocks from, um, you know, uh, Belmont Shore, which is a, sort of the major hub of good restaurants and bars. <laughs> wow. But everything, so, I mean, I've seen pictures. It sounds nice. And everything, you know, there's bike paths everywhere. So it's a big bike place because the weather is always bike-friendly. So yeah. I just I just have a you know I have a bicycle I have a beach cruiser and I just go every everywhere I need to go from there, and then anywhere else is just like take a cab to the airport and fly out to whatever city I'm going to next. But when I'm here, never felt the need for a car. So All right, I'm, I'm saving the environment single handedly. You are, you guys. Just, you know what? Go and drive twice as much because I got it covered. I'm never driving. Yeah. Well, I've, I'm not either. Now I'm living like a hermit and like not like I'm I've, I'm one of those people now like, oh, my God, I have to leave the house. No. Well, when I'm not uh, at cons, that's me. Exactly. I, yeah. I never get out. Um, in fact, since I've been back um, on Monday from Chicago, I haven't left the house. <laughs> I've been here working. <laughs> And that's what, you know, you start to go crazy. You have that Tom Hanks talking to the volleyball kind of syndrome happening. Yep. <laughs> I'm talking to my cat, you know, and the day he yeah. talks back, that's when I lock myself up. Yeah. I mean, you have to, that's the thing. I'm like, you kind of are required to have a pet at that point because it just keeps you from seeming bully crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can talk to the cat. It's, you know. It now, feels um, less insane uh, than talking to the wall or something. It does. It does feel less insane. Now, if you, you know, if you start going through a whole Son of Sand thing, then that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. You're done. 
what are what are your links and uh, Twitter and everything so people can find you and follow you and stalk you and and check out the cons and stuff? Okay, I'm at uh, on Twitter. I'm JK underscore Woodward. Uh, on Facebook, I'm James Kenneth Woodward. Um, on Instagram, I don't know. It's JK. Everything's JK Woodward in, in, in some way or another. I know it's JK Woodward on, on um, Instagram, but I just don't know if it's underscore or not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I forget that stuff too. I'm like, sometimes there's a dash, sometimes it's an underline. Who knows? Yeah. Actually, if you go to aboutme.com slash JK Woodward, it, it'll give you all my information, my bio, and all my links. It's all consolidated okay. on one place. It's kind of a it's kind of a cool That's website. Nice. That's nice. Yeah, and definitely check out JK's blog because, like I said, I mean, I like behind-the-scenes stuff. That's why I'm asking you things like color choices and layouts and all that because I find that stuff really interesting. So when, you're, when you blog your, your pages or your pin-up process, I just think it's really cool stuff. And that's at uh, jkwoodwardart.blogspot.com. I still have Blogspot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it works, whatever. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on Behemoth and finally, you know, getting the opportunity, finding finding the right opportunity to do this. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. It's been fun. It's, and so if, pe- if people want to buy it, what do they do? They just go to Monkey Brain? Yeah, you can go to monkeybrain.com, and it's right there on the opening page because um, it's very recent. It just came out two weeks ago, I think. Um, also, if you just go to Comixology and do a search for Behemoth, you know, it comes up. It's available through Comixology. Okay. And then um, what's the going to be the... Uh, the deal with printed issues. Are you waiting to see what the interest is? Are you waiting till there's a full volume? Is there anything going on there? Well, we're going to do this first arc uh, digital, and um, we're going to take a look at how we did, and then we're going to go from there. We're going to, um, but the, the you know the intent is always to do the print comic, or or at the very least print collected. Um, but like I said, you know, we'll see how this goes first. You know, we might. Uh, if it does really badly, and I haven't, I haven't looked at the numbers while I'm working on it, so I don't want to know. <laughs> if it's doing yeah. really badly, I don't want to know. It's like the stock market. You just don't look at it. Well, I, I still got an issue and a half to finish, so if, if, I, if I get my heart broken now, it's going to be much, much harder to, <laughs> to finish it out. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, the intent is always print. You know, digital is never the, uh, the end game. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll let you go back to work since you have another 99 hours to put in. And <laughs> it's just it's early yet. It is. So thank you for taking the time out of your day. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Guys, don't forget that you can uh, visit all of JK's links. And for all of my stuff, go to amberunmasked.com. If you want to sponsor the show, go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.